David has been preaching for over 50 years the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. And we've, and that's what we've come to hear, isn't it? The gospel of our Savior. Our meeting, the Lord willing, will continue this morning for our worship service. And then tonight at 6, so if you're listening by way of radio and television, you have opportunity to get here. And then the Lord willing, uh, Monday through Wednesday morning at 11 o'clock and then in the evenings at, at 7 o'clock. Brother Miller considers himself just a country preacher or a country preacher at large. And if that's the case, he's in good company. I uh, think of Elijah and John the Baptist would fit that same uh, description, wouldn't you? Well, let's ask the Lord to bless us as our brother comes. Now, gracious Heavenly Father, we are here at your appointment. And we believe that you have led us to this very hour. And we have prayed that you would give our dear brother the very words that you'd have him preach to us. And we pray that you'd open the scriptures to us and illumine us even as you did your disciples as you walked on the road to Emmaus. We confess that uh, we're dull of, of hearing and seeing. And unless you help us, we so often miss that which you'd have us to see and hear. Lord, do a work in our hearts these days as we contemplate the glories of our great Savior we pray, Lord, those outside of faith, those who have not come to saving faith, would see him as the only Savior. And those who may be following you from afar, may they, they quit their wanderings and their uh, being away from you and come close to the Savior's side. And those who know you and love you, Lord, would you stir our hearts and to a burning fire and help us to, to live out this gospel and to love it and to preach it and to tell it to others. Now, bless our brother, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning, folks. I'm delighted to see you and thrilled to be your preacher during these four days. I invite you to turn in your Bible, please, to the New Testament book of Hebrews, chapter 1. Hebrews, chapter 1, beginning at verse 1. Now, I must confess that I do have some trepidation in my heart wondering about your motive for inviting me back to your church. I heard about a fellow who was invited to sing during a service, and when he finished, the folks all said, do it again, do it again. And he thought, oh my, I've really done well. So he did it a second time. And when he finished the second time, the folks all said, do it again, do it again. And he thought, oh my. And he did it a third time. And when he had finished, the folks said, do it again, do it again. And he put forth his hand to stay the crowd and said, oh no, I won't do it again. And they said, you're going to do it till you get it right. Well, whatever your motive, I am delighted to, to be here and preach these sermons. The writer of the book of Hebrews has for his theme the superiority of Jesus Christ. In this book, he tells us that Jesus is better than the angels. He's better than the Old Testament prophets. He's better than the Old Testament priest. And the new covenant in Christ's blood is far superior to the Old Testament covenant. 
And the writer will argue his theme along two lines. He argues on the basis of Christ's person, who he is. And then he argues on the basis of Christ's performance, what he has done. And the bottom line in the book of Hebrews is this. There's no other one like Jesus. And no other one has ever done the things that Christ has done. Now let's begin with verse 1. God, who at sundry times and in divers manners spake in times past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sin, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, being made so much better than the angels, as he hath by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. Now I call your attention to verse 3 first. Here we have two statements regarding the person of Christ. Would you look at it? He says first that he is the brightness of God's glory. That is, he is the effulgence. He's the shining forth. He's the radiant splendor of the glory of God. Jesus is to God what the rays and the beams are to the sun. The rays and the beams are that by which the sun is seen and known. Its warmth, its beauty, its brightness. They are experienced through the rays and the beams. Now, in a similar yet far greater way, Jesus is the one in whom and through whom the glory of God is seen and known. He's the brightness of God's glory. But not only that, Jesus is the express image of God's person. Now, this phrase, express image, has in mind an engraver's tool upon which there's an insignia. And when you place that tool down upon the wood or the wax or the metal and lift it away, it leaves there an exact duplication, a precise reproduction of the insignia. We get our English word character from this idea. Do you see what he's telling us about Jesus? He's telling us that in his essential nature, Jesus Christ possesses the exact same character as God Almighty. What do you folks think about when you think about God? Do you think about the eternal pre-existent one? Well, I would tell you that before there was ever any gold in California, 
before there was any coal in Kentucky, before there was any oil in the Middle East, before there was any Razorbacks in Arkansas, Jesus Christ was already living in eternity past, dwelling in unapproachable light, enjoying the fellowship of his Father. What do you think about when you think about God? This text is telling us that whatever characterizes the nature of deity, it also characterizes the nature of Jesus Christ. Here is a biblical affirmation of the deity of Christ. Now, that's the first half of my sermon. What do you think? I expected resounding amens. If for no other reason, it was brief. But if you thought that was half of the sermon chronologically, you have greatly erred in your judgment. That's just the first half of the outline. Now, here's the second half. I want you to see the performances of Christ. Now, I'm going to call attention to four items. First, I want you to see his performance as the inerrant revelator. Now, in verse 1 and the first half of verse 2, he's going to give us a fourfold explanation regarding God's revelation of himself to man. Here's the first thing he tells us. He tells us about the fragmentation of the Old Testament revelation. Look at verse 1. God who at sundry times, now that means not all at once, in stages, in parts, God made himself known in the Old Testament times. The Old Testament scriptures did not come all at once. They came over a period of several hundred years. It was at sundry times. And it was in diverse manners. That means God didn't use the same method every time he made himself known in the Old Testament. You will remember that on one occasion, God spoke audibly from Mount Sinai as the mountain trembled and smoked. And so terrifying was that voice, those who heard it uh, besought him that he would speak no more. You will recall that later, with his finger, God wrote the Ten Commandments on tables of stone. You will remember that once God spoke to Moses through a burning bush on the backside of the desert. Unless, of course, you had read the old Broadman commentary on the book of Exodus. And there in chapter 3, the writer, Dr. Roy Honeycutt, says, There are three possible interpretations of this text. 
Number one, it could have been a burning bush. What a novel approach to interpreting the Bible. Number two, it could have been the sun reflecting upon the orange foliage, giving the appearance of burning. Or three, it could have been an inner experience that Moses had. And if you and I had been there, we would not have seen any burning bush nor heard any voice. And then he adds, for the present writer, the latter seems more probable. Well, for the present country preacher, the former seems more probable. God spoke to Moses through the burning bush. You will remember that he spoke to Balaam through a donkey. He spoke to Isaiah through a vision. You see, the Old Testament scriptures came over a period of several hundred years, several different writers, several different ways. It was a fragmented, incomplete revelation. Now, note that I do not mean to imply by fragmentation that it was false. I do not mean to imply when I say it was incomplete that it was incorrect. I'm just telling you, it was fragmented. Do you see the difference? Nod your head up and down like this. All right, here's the second item now. I want you to see the fullness of the New Testament revelation in Christ. Look at that next statement. God hath spoken unto us by his Son. You and I who are privileged to live on the post side of the incarnation of Christ have a full revelation from God. You and I know more than the Old Testament saints ever dreamed about knowing. We know more about faith than Abraham. We know more about the law than Moses. We know more about salvation than Isaiah. We know more about how and why to praise God than David, and we know more about the end time than Daniel. We have a full revelation in God, uh, in Christ. But now I want you to see a third thing. I want you to see the, the finality of the New Testament revelation in Christ. Look at it again. God hath in these last days, in these last days of revelation, God has spoken fully and finally in His Son, Jesus Christ. Now, I don't know about you folks, but it makes me nervous to be around these saints who seem to always have a fresh word from God. I mean, to hear them talk, you'd think, that on the way to Sunday school, God had appeared to them and given them an authoritative, definitive word that the rest of us don't have. 
because we're limited to just the Old and New Testaments. That makes me nervous. Do you know the kind of folks I'm talking about? I sat in a midweek Bible study and prayer time in my home church in Heber Springs, Arkansas, several years ago. Now make a note, more than three years ago. And I listened as the pastor and some laymen uh, shared their testimonies regarding what they had learned on Monday and Tuesday evening of that same week at a seminar on prophecy at the local charismatic church in town. It seems that the leader of the seminar had received a vision from God. And in this vision, God allegedly told him that there was going to be a nuclear explosion south of Heber Springs, about 50 miles within the next three years. And that our area up through Heber Springs and Cleburne County would be a refugee camp for those who escaped the explosion. Now, immediately upon hearing such information, my attention peaked. I live there. And you're talking nuclear explosion. And one of the laymen spoke up and corroborated what the pastor had said. And he reminded them that a few weeks earlier, he himself had had a dream. And in this dream, God allegedly had shown him that there was going to be a great explosion south of Heber Springs in the near future. But, said he, what I did not know until this week was that our area up through Cleburne County would be a refugee camp for those who escaped the explosion. But, said he, that's the way God speaks today. To one member of the body, he gives a vision. To another member of the body, a dream. To another member of the body, a word of knowledge. And the body of Christ comes together, and each member shares what he or she has received from God. And the church then synthesizes, puts all of that together, and there you have God's revelation of himself to man today. I heard that. I heard it with my own ears. What do you think about that? Well, I sat there for an inordinately long period of time, being forbearing and long-suffering. And at last... I said, brethren, since this is a share time, I've got something I'd like to share with you. I'd like to share with you that it makes me nervous to be around folks who seem to have an authoritative, definitive word from God that the rest of us don't have because we only have the Bible. 
that makes me nervous. Now, I, too, am keenly interested in the second coming of Christ. And I think it's profitable for the saints to get together on occasions and to discuss the great complex and intricate details of his second appearing. However, you ought to make a sharp distinction between the exposition of Scripture and the supposition of some dude's mind. Those two things aren't necessarily the same. Hereby shall you know a prophet, if what he says comes to pass. That's good evidence that he's spoken for God. However, are you aware that if someone comes along and speaks a, quote, prophetic word, unquote, and that word comes to pass... That is still not conclusive that he's spoken for God. Did you know that? You want proof positive? The Bible says if what he has spoken does not come to pass, that is proof positive that he hasn't spoken for God. Now, that's been well over three years ago. Well over three years ago. To my knowledge. Now, I admit I'm out of the loop most of the time. I'm the last to know. I get it fourth and fifth hand. It's old news most of the time before I get it. But I believe if there had been a nuclear explosion south of Heber Springs, Arkansas, my hometown, I would have found out about it by now. (laughs) There hadn't been a nuclear explosion either 50 miles or 500 miles south of Heber Springs, Arkansas. What does that tell us about the leader of the seminar? It tells us that he was as mixed up as a termite in a yo-yo. He must have heard a mule braying and thought he had been called to preach. He was as bogus as a $3 bill. And the Baptist who went to the seminar and gave money to it deserved to lose every dime of. Now look, we're going to have to decide where are we going to get our authority? Are we going to get our authority from the objective word of God, this objective source outside of ourselves? Or are we going to get our authority subjectively? What some man thinks. Well, I'll tell you, beloved, I'm going to stand with the Scriptures. I want to show you a 
fourth item. I want you to see the father of both revelations. Now, this is a test, and you got to pass this or we can't go any further. Are you ready? Pull yourself up to your best height now and look at verse 1 and tell me who was it who spoke unto the fathers by the prophets? Are you all looking at that verse? Who did that? God did. Now look at it again. You passed the first half of the test. Who was it who hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son? God did. Now, sophisticated academic credentials are not required at this point. You and I can now reasonably conclude that whether you're reading in the Old Testament something a prophet said, or whether you're reading in the New Testament something Jesus said, you are reading the Word of God. God is the Father of both revelations. Now put that aside. Here's the second item. I want you to see the excellency, the superiority of Christ as the infallible regulator. Now I want you to look at verse 2, the last half of the statement. Whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds. Now look down at verse 3 in the third statement. And upholding all things by the word of his power. Now, here he has told us that Jesus Christ created all things and that he is actively involved in the created order by upholding its unity and harmony and balance. This debunks theoevolution. The theoevolutionists say that God did create the universe, he set certain laws into motion, and then he backed away, and he's totally uninvolved in the universe. But here the writer tells us that we live in a cosmos rather than in chaos because of the present providential government of Jesus Christ. He does actively Uphold the unity and the harmony and the balance of the created order by the word of his power. Well, glory. Did y'all hear about the comet that came close to the earth a few days ago? Well, land of Goshen. Where y'all been? I mean, the thing, the thing came close. In fact, it came within about 19,000 miles. And in the, in the universe, in our galaxy, in our solar system, that's close. And that's compounded by the fact that it was traveling like 40,000 miles an hour. 
That could have gotten here in a hurry. 40,000 miles, a comet. Why do these things not hit the earth more often? There are comets out there larger than the city of Los Angeles. Why is this? I'll tell you why. It's because of the providential government of the Lord Jesus Christ. He upholds the unity and harmony and balance. You have any idea how big the universe is? Our planet, Earth, is situated in the Milky Way galaxy. The Milky Way is so big. If at the dawn of creation as we know it, you had caught a light beam and put a saddle on it and mounted up and commenced to ride at the speed of light, 186,000 miles per second, rounded off. And you had been riding since the dawn of creation as we know it. Do you know how far along you'd be? You'd only be about one-tenth of the way across the Milky Way galaxy today. Now, I don't know about you, but in my country boy way of thinking, that's big-time stuff. That's major league. And yet the scientists tell us there are other galaxies. And many of these other galaxies are bigger than the Milky Way. And here the Bible says Jesus created all of that and he upholds its unity and harmony and balance by the word of his power. Now here's a question. If the Lord Jesus can do that, can he not take the broken pieces of our lives and put them together in such a way that they redound unto God's glory and work to our eternal good. He's the infallible regulator. You may have come in this room this morning thinking that the sun won't ever shine again on you. But I have got good news. Our Lord Jesus says, cast your care on me because I care for you. And he is able... The captain of our salvation is able to give unity and harmony and balance, to give forgiveness, to give salvation and freedom. Trust in him. Now, let me show you a third thing. Are you all doing okay so far? All right, here's the third item. I want you to see him as the incomparable Redeemer. Now, I want you to look at verse 3 again. The fourth statement. When he had by himself purged our sin. Three things here. One, the sovereignty of the Redeemer. He purged our sin. Do I need to remind you that our Lord owed us nothing. To hear some of the weaker brethren preach today, you'd think the Lord 
had been morally obligated to leave heaven's glory and condescend to earth's shame and die an ignominious substitutionary death on the cross for wicked sinners. No, he was under no obligation at all. The truth is, he could have left all of us, all of Adam's race, in their sin and sent them all to hell. He'd have still been just. But in the great heart of God, there's love and grace and mercy. You know why he came? He came because he wanted to. Hallelujah. He's sovereign. Number two, notice the singularity of the Redeemer. It would have been sufficient to convey the notion of his being Redeemer had it said when he purged our sin. But he adds this statement. When he had by himself purged our sin. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. Notice the sufficiency of the redemption. He purged our sin. Grammatically, it is a fact accomplished in the past. But having perfect and continuing results throughout the future. Tis done. Tis done. The great transactions done. There's never going to be any more work to do regarding the atonement. Christ has purged our sins. Now put that aside. And I want you to see a fourth item. I want you to see him not only as the inerrant revelator, not only as the infallible regulator, not only as the incomparable redeemer, I want you to see him now as the indisputed ruler. Now, I want you to look at verse 3 again. Have you ever seen one verse that had more good stuff in it? I'll tell you, folks, it behooves us to take a close look at the Scriptures. Do you believe in plenary verbal inspiration of the Bible? That every word is inspired? Oh, at the good stuff in this one verse. Look at what he says in the last statement. When he had by himself purged our sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. The right hand of the majesty on high is a position of veritable providential government over the affairs of the universe. Our God reigns. Our God reigns. He is not going to be Lord. He is the Lord. And I might point out for you that He is not Lord 
because he is risen from the dead. He is the Lord before he ever died. That's what gave significance to his resurrection. That the God-man, the incarnate God, in the fullness of the times, was made of a woman made under the law, fulfilled the righteous demands of the law while living here, and suffered the curse of the law, and was buried, but God raised him from the dead. In the Pentecostal sermon that Peter gave in Acts chapter 2, he said it was not possible that the grave could hold him. He was Lord before he died. There's a line that's been drawn through the ages. And on that line stands an old rugged cross. On that cross, a battle is raging for the gain of man's soul or its loss. On one side march the forces of evil, all the demons and the devil of hell. On the other, the angels of glory. And they meet on Golgotha's hill. The earth shakes with the force of the conflict. And the sun refuses to shine. For there hangs God's son in the balance. But then from the darkness he cries. It is finished. The battle is over. It is finished. There will be no more war. It is finished. The end of the conflict, it is finished, and Jesus is Lord. Let's bow and pray. Our Father, we're grateful for the man Christ Jesus. We're grateful for these four verses that tell us so much about his person and his work. Would you write these things indelibly? upon our hearts and before our eyes. And even in this moment, may every knee bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen.